So I, I think the the consensus is that that in the in the Western world, meat is a large part of our culture, our society, our everyday diet, and to the point that Jindy made. To the extent that the president signed an executive order saying, hey, this is an essential business and you can't close these slaughterhouses because we, we need meat. Even though meat is not necessary for living, it's just something that we're accustomed to. So what are some things, this seems like an opportune time for people to maybe look at how they're consuming meat and potentially make a change. Welcome to The Jealous Vegan, a podcast about healthy eating, habit change, and the hurdles we all need help overcoming. I'm Jennifer Hunley, co-founder of The Jealous Vegan, also known as The Voice. Today, we are joined by... April Cunningham, confidence coach, co-founder of The Jealous Vegan, also known as The Influencer. Jendai Jackson, owner of Jendai Asha Creative, also known as The Entrepreneur. Lisa Carter founder of Kinetic Fitness, also known as The Balancer. Lawrence Rassaw, The Weekend Chef, also known as The Artisan. In this episode, we're talking about the COVID-19 pandemic and how it has affected the food supply, namely uh, how it has uh, affected the meat industry. And as you know, we're plant-based on the same, but we also were curious because of the fact that people are calling the COVID-19 pandemic possibly the end of meat. And we're here to discuss both the supply shortage and to offer you tips on what we might do when meat is in short supply. What are the options? What do you eat? We're all about it. And what might you eat that is actually a plant? Thank you, April. Appreciate you getting us started. If you haven't been paying attention to the news, um, let's bring you up to speed. We're going to reference a couple of articles that'll be, of course, in the show notes. One is from Time, one is from MSN.com, and the other is from WebMD. And they all talk about how the food supply has been disrupted as a result of coronavirus. And so I thought it was interesting at the end of April, there was an article in MSN that talked about the fact that this was supposed to be a big year for meat. And I never thought about it, but because there had been record um, economic growth and low unemployment, it was causing people to actually buy meat more often than normal. And as a result, there was an, an uptick in production and expectation that there'd be, of course, an uptick in consumption. But as coronavirus began, that changed pretty dramatically. And so just a couple of stats that they shared in the video associated with this article. So the same week, which would have been the last week of April in 2019, cattle slaughter was at 221,000, which I was just astounded by this number, by the way. Excuse me. That was in 2020, was 221,000. In 2019, that same year, same week last year, was 362,000. So that's how much it had dropped uh, year over year, just because of the coronavirus and the fact that people were not only not consuming as much in restaurants, but also that there just was not as much availability of meat. And then for, for hogs, these numbers really killed me. Uh, this same week last year, 1.4 million hogs were slaughtered. This was, at, again, the end of April um, 2019. That same week in 2020, 852,000. So still a tremendous number, a lot more than I would have expected. Did you guys find this, those numbers shocking? Mm. That's how much meat Americans are eating? No, it doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, we very typically eat meat with every 
I mean, with every meal, eggs, bacon, you know, all these things. And was, yeah, it doesn't make surprise me at all. I'm happy, actually. I'm not because of the pandemic, of course, but I'm happy that actually there are fewer animals dying for the new, supposed nutritional needs of humans. You know, I've seen in grocery stores a lot of signs limiting the, the number of chicken or beef packages or even pork products that you could purchase at one time. Have you guys noticed that there had been, through the months of May and into June, a short supply of meat? No, I, I didn't notice. But I think that's because I haven't paid attention or, or have not been over to um, the displays where the meat are, are, are you know, are set up. So I, I when you said that earlier, I, I think even before the episode started, we were talking a little bit about it. And I was shocked to hear that there was a limited, you know, amount of packages or, you know, food that you can get from the meat section because I, I just wasn't aware because that's not in my purview anymore. Yeah, I, I too, I similar to Jindai, um, I'm not a huge uh, meat eater. Uh, well, I don't eat meat at all. I eat fish. But but I did notice that when you go to the grocery stores that there are limitations. But I attribute it to the fact that people are tend to buy more and store, not necessarily due to the agricultural uh, impacts or I wasn't thinking farms and people not being there to farm the land, that type of thing. So it was more so we're limited on what we have and we can't keep up with the demand and not for what we're discussing today. So I never I didn't I didn't think about that. Can we piggyback take a Take a quick detour, actually, to piggyback on what Lauren said. He said, I don't eat meat, I eat fish. And I just want to, you know, this is very common. Actually, this is not to pick on you, Lawrence. This is very common. I hear people say to me, like, so I, when I say I don't eat meat, and they're like, okay, so you eat fish? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, um, yeah, fish is a meat. And again, this is not to pick on you. I want to call it out, actually, for no, our no, audience, no, because fine. it may be that other people have this perception. Uh, a lot of fish consumed in, the Amer in America actually is farmed, just... FYI, salmon, for example, is notoriously, they add color, these different things. So just want to point out, audience, that meat is still fish. But we're talking about, in this case, I guess we're talking about beef and pork in, in terms of the shortage. But I, I think that's an important distinction to call out just as a way of education. Yeah, I initially had the same sort of assessment of, I just felt like anything that had flesh was considered meat. I grew up that way. But People would, when it's categorized as far as dairy and eggs, dairy is not eggs. So meat, again, how typically it's labeled that I've seen is poultry is different from meat, which is pork and beef. And so you're right. You're absolutely right. I agree. hundred percent. No, it's interesting, right? Because when I was in Europe, dairy, eggs are not considered to be dairy. And we're taking a detour here. I just want to, because I think it's educational for anyone who might be listening and who feels like fish is... <laughs> it's not meat. <laughs> um, but eggs in Europe are not considered, at least where I was in Spain and Italy, was not considered to be dairy. I think so much of that is like programming too, right? Because that's how you see it. That's how it's broken down. And so that's how people associate it in that way. I was thinking uh, even to go back to what we were talking about before is it's interesting that America does have such a huge meat um, production because for other countries, meat is more like a, 
a delicacy or it's it's something that you eat for big events. It's like a specialty item, you know, but for us, we're having it breakfast, lunch and dinner. And that's what I thought of when Jen was talking earlier about uh, the meat industry, thinking that because, you know, unemployment rates were down and everybody's making more money. Yeah, the meat consumption is going to go up. That's I think how other cultures kind of like look at meat is it's like it's like your fun time, you know, feel good. We're having a party. We're going to have some meat, but it's not like their daily diet. So I think it's a little alarming that um, Americans eat so much meat, <laughs> like so much meat, probably, you know, quadruple other places and what that's doing for the population. And I mean, and the planet. Right. I mean, I feel like Corona saved some animal lives, but at the same time, it also probably killed more animals because there was this document. They were well documented. I don't have the articles in front of me, but I recall hearing about uh, meat factories having to or factories, farms having to slaughter a bunch of adults, uh, pigs in order to make room for the babies. Um because the consumption was down and the demand was lower, uh, they just weren't able to get the, as much meat off of the farms. And so they were having to kill more adults. And that when I read that, that just really broke my heart, because it's one thing if we're if you're eating meat because if you're killing animals because you think you need to. And we can have, you know, this is why we're here. I have a whole sidebar about that. But it's a whole other thing if you're just killing them gratuitously because there's no space for them and you need to still have more animals come in. They basically are made room for more animals, babies to come in slaughtering adults. That, that gave me a lot of heartburn. And I'm not a, I'm not an ethical vegan. I'm not, a, I, I don't abstain from meat because of, specifically because of animal welfare. Although I do care about that. That's not my primary driver. That broke my heart though. That fact really broke my heart. But isn't, is it, is it just us here in, in America though? Like I'm, I'm, Listening to what you're saying, April, and then piggybacking off what you said, Lisa, about us eating so much meat in the United States. I mean, there's a line in this article, in the Time article that Jen referenced, that that says that um, meat is so central to the American diet that Trump has sought to keep supermarket butcher cases full with far more urgency than he has approached other aspects of the pandemic. But is that just us? I mean, I I wish I would have did some research ahead of time about this, but when you travel to Middle Eastern countries or Africa, I mean, lamb is huge, right? I mean, and and beef, and and maybe this kind of goes to what you were saying, Lisa, that they treat it more as a delicacy than we do, but this this has to be a worldwide problem, not just an American problem. I think the production is where the, like, the line is drawn, right? They eat meat, yes, but I mean, even when I I want to say, I mean, every place that I've gone, the, what was interesting, like when, when we went to West Africa was like, people have animals, but they have their own animals and they kill them. And people aren't really, they're eating stuff like yams and potatoes and beans on a daily basis. And then if there's a special event, they also can't go to the store and get like, a package of chicken. You've got to go find somebody who has a chicken. They're going to kill the chicken for you. You're going to get the whole chicken and you can, you know, you have to cut it up and it's, it's a little more, more um, laborious in that way. So what I have found is that people don't, they're, the production's not there. So people don't really eat chicken or, or meat period like that because it's not mass produced and it's not easy for them to, to get it. They can't just 
pick it up already packaged and cleaned and take it home and cook it. I think the Western influence has impacted the culinary choices of other parts of the world. Uh, China is a huge—the U.S. exports tons of meat to China. Um, in fact, that's been uh, a topic of debate of late, because when the meat industry cried, hey, we need help because we're—you know, there's going to be a, a disruption in the food supply, a recent article in Time also mentions that um, they also were found to have been exporting thousands of pounds of pork to China. So um, I don't know if that was a, we need we need to get this out of here to make room for the animals coming in, or if it was simply, this is the economics of, of what we do and we have to keep going. But I do think that in other cultures, rice is more of a staple of their diet, and meat is, to, to Lisa's point, more of a, an occasional thing. Whereas here, I would say that... <laughs> Rice is an occasional thing in the American diet, not a staple. Rice is actually, in some circles, rather uh, a nemesis, like low carb. Don't eat any, don't eat any. These low carb diets, actually, I'm sorry, y'all know. Hello, keto. Um, I, I just have to plug that real fast. These low carb diets actually probably uh, feed into that um, idea of like, you just want to eat meat and vegetables or you want to eat meat and cheese. Like you want to have the high protein, you want to skip the carbs which is reversed in other countries. And we've talked about this before with the China study. Uh, the evidence presented from the China study suggests, strongly suggests, that in fact the opposite is true for a healthful diet for people who are living longer with uh, fewer instance, instances of these diseases of affluence, which we're speaking to right now. Uh, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, um, obesity, it's, it's really rather interesting that these are diseases of affluence. We have this affluence problem where we can eat meat with every meal because we can. You go to the supermarket, you don't even have to worry about where it came from. You can just grab it off the shelf and eat it, and it's what's satisfying. Oh, and it's high protein, so you can stay full longer. These are all things people say to us, like, I want to stay full longer. And yet, at the same time, it is it can produce the inverse effect of or the opposite effect of what we're actually going toward and do all these animals really need to die in order for humans to be healthy and nourished? And oh, by the way, have delicious meal on the plate. Another factor, um, I think, to the fact that there's a reduction or a limitation on the, the meat that's available in markets is uh, typically uh, food or in this case, in this case, uh, farm raised animals, there's an allotted amount of of uh, livestock that is devoted to the restaurants that's different from the production for regular consumption for you and I. So obviously during the period of the pandemic where there were no restaurants that where they weren't open to the level that they are now or they're starting to open up, just the, 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 the demand for the restaurant production uh, was not there. So logically, I think that also contributed to the fact that they had all these animals that were unfortunately ready for, um, I don't want to say harvesting, but I guess for butchering or slaughtering. Yeah. I guess anywhere you use processing. it, it's a bit much. Yeah. Processing. It's a better word, but the demand wasn't there. So that also, I believe contributed to the fact that they had to be slaughtered, uh, um, or discarded, not even slaughtered for consumption. Yeah. The, it's interesting you mentioned that because all of the articles reference the fact that the, the, the animals are the same, but the packaging is different. They could not pivot quickly enough to producing, you know, a, a side of beef to go to a, a couple of restaurants. 
um, with with no packaging and labeling to then put it into smaller quantities uh, for the average consumer to purchase with the proper packaging and and all those things disclosed um, and labeling. So then, yes, a lot of things, unfortunately, did go to waste. So I, I think the the consensus is that that in the in the Western world, meat is a large part of our culture, our society, our everyday diet. And to the point that Jindy made, to the extent that the president signed an executive order saying, hey, this is an essential business and you can't close these slaughterhouses because we we need meat. Even though meat is not necessary for living, it's just something that we're accustomed to. So what are some things, this seems like an opportune time for people to maybe look at how they're consuming meat and potentially make a change. What are some possible things that our audience might consider doing um, to lessen their dependence on meat? Meatless Mondays. <laughs> Love a meatless Monday. I was thinking about what uh, we were talking a little bit before this episode about um, we were talking. We had another episode. Which one was it, Jen? Episode 36. 36. Is plant-based more expensive? Right. Is plant-based more expensive? At this <laughs> juncture, it might not be, right? It might be the, act- the cheaper, more cost-effective you know, option for people to to try even plant-based if you felt like before maybe it's a little expensive or tedious the finding what you the right kind of meat at the right price might actually be the harder task at this point so uh, I agree I think trying out a plant-based diet is is a good idea one thing that I've done that um I think is really helpful and that the audience might find helpful is um I invested in some um it wasn't a huge investment. I, I just got some proper storage containers for things like lettuce, cabbage, berries, lemons, onions. Uh, you know how you usually just throw them in the fridge? Maybe you put them in like a Ziploc bag or whatever. But they have these these storage containers that are designed to keep them fresher for longer. And I noticed like within, you know, the first time using them that like I had I'd bought um at the store, they had like a three pack of lettuce. And usually I can get through the first two, but the last one's like pretty wilted and kind of nasty, especially during quarantine when I was only going to the store every other week. So I'm like trying to get enough groceries to last for two weeks. But, you know, it's kind of hard to like let produce. And I hear a lot of people say when they're trying to transition to plant bases, like the produce ends up going bad because you're not eating it fast enough. You're not cooking with it. You don't know what to cook. Um, but these storage containers have been like, huge i mean the the lettuce is still good a week and a half later so if i want to make a salad it's not all wilted and whatever um i got them off amazon we can probably put them in the show notes but they're great containers and they on the side they even tell you for some produce you put a little water in the bottom and you vent it so that they can get the proper moisture and for other things you turn it off so that it doesn't and that's been huge just that I mean, when we're talking about, you know, conserving money, conserving resources, um, I think that little things like that in terms of transitioning to plant based or trying not to eat as much meat are huge in the long run. So I love my containers. I'm so jealous, Lisa. (laughs) Sorry, if I can just say I'm so jealous, Lisa, because I tried to order some of those. And in fact, I ordered some in May and they still aren't here. Really? And Yes, like, and everywhere has been sold out because I guess everybody's like, oh, I'm going to be at home. I should probably take better care of the food that I'm buying. So, yes, but we will still post a, a link so people can keep an eye on them. Sorry, Lawrence. What yeah, were you going to say? No, no it's, no, it's okay. I was just saying I like Jindy's idea. It's To me, it's a bit more structured. Um, if you have a day that you're going to eliminate 
a particular item. It can be not just meatless Mondays, but if you're trying to restrict sugar or, you know, some other consumption um, article or type of food. But if you say, hey, on Monday or on Fridays, we're not going to eat any meat. It's like it's expected and you're you're contributing to your your schedule. You're contributing to structure. So I, I like that that concept of, of a meatless day. Yeah, I agree. And I found that that um, mushrooms are a good way to kind of approximate that meaty feel. In fact, I um, just saw a picture that I'd taken in a farmer's market, I guess, last year of a lion's mane. I mean, in this place, it's like devoted to mushrooms. And and so you can go past like the portobello and shiitake and button mushrooms and really see what else is available in your local markets to um, give you a different flavor, uh, a meatiness almost, um, and can even uh, sometimes approximate the texture. Uh, I recently had, uh, Lisa and I, when we were in California, uh, we had a oyster po' boy and it was made from oyster mushrooms deep fried on a po' boy. It had this, and the, the sauce that they used was a sweet kind of spicy sauce. It was amazing. Um, haven't duplicated it, but of course when we first had it, I was just like, oh my God, this is awesome. Um, there is a place in DC right now called Plant, P-L-N-T, I think it is. There's one in a Whole Foods in Southwest and there's some others that are sprinkled around and they have an, an oyster pool boy. It's made from mushrooms to your point, Jen. And I have personally found that uh, audience, you may have heard me talk about this and we talk about this in episode 64 about me transitioning now to a, the primary cook in my house. And what I'm finding is that I've got, I bought all these cookbooks uh, and we can represent these in the show notes. So many good cookbooks. They're also on our Insta feed. Um, so many good cookbooks. And I'm finding that a lot of the ingredients actually are pretty much the same. Like oysters, uh, not oysters, you've got uh, your lemon, lime, garlic, uh, hemp seeds, lots of nuts, lots of cashews in vegan cooking, lots of cashews for the creaminess, coconut uh, cream uh, for creaminess also, um, agave nectar for sweetness. There are a lot of the ingredients are the same. So I feel like actually now that as I'm making this journey on my own, I feel like, oh, I could put together a pantry. I have put together a pantry. <laughs> Probably should recommend it to our audience and put together like, what's your survival plant-based pantry? Because one of the hard parts is not just like do in a time like this, if you were going to go meatless Monday or decide that you're not going to eat meat, the hard part is not that other things are not available. The hard part is, well, what do I eat and how do I put it together? And then there's this fear of like, well, what if I mess it up or what if it's not delicious? And if you're cooking for other people who like bacon, <laughs> there's a pressure then to air quote, get it right. Even as you need to kind of, it's like working a new job. You've got to, you got to learn the job before you can you can, you can lead the job. And I say that with firsthand, like firsthand experience, giving myself grace to say, I need to learn this. And one of the biggest things that I am learning is that a lot of the ingredients, once you stock the pantry, you can be really equipped to create delicious meals um, with minimal effort in the kitchen and minimal. One thing I hate to feel is rushed because I'm trying to get something on the table quickly um, and or missing an ingredient, feeling like I got everything but the cashews, <laughs> everything but the sweet paprika. Um, stocking that pantry is really critical and arming yourself with knowledge, uh, resources and such. Um, that's the first critical step to answering the question, what's for dinner? So mushrooms. I am not in love with mushrooms. 
And I feel like I need to be because of how well they substitute for me. So I know someone, one of you guys, maybe it might've been Jen, mentioned a whole bunch of different types of mushrooms for people like me who don't like the consistency of mushrooms because maybe they're rubbery. Um, sometimes they could even be slimy at times. What, what, which mushroom would any of you guys recommend for a first time, you know, Person's gonna eat mushrooms for the first shiitake. I like portobello. Yeah, shiitake. Baby portobellos, in my opinion, yeah, they are. They're not as uh, the aroma and the texture um, isn't as, in my opinion, as mushroomy. I grew up and I didn't. I did not like mushrooms, um, so it wasn't until I got older. And of course, as April mentioned, as far as having that that pantry of, of food items. And I know you do cook Jindy. Um, so just having the right, I guess, combinations, uh, we cooked and we all ate. Um, remember the taco meat that I made, I made from mushrooms and I used, uh, walnuts, soaked walnuts. And so I don't know if you felt as though you tasted mushrooms in that. Did you, do you remember? I did not. And see, yeah. And, and again, I think the, the consistency or the size of the mushroom makes a difference too. Um, so when you're trying to mock uh, ground beef, obviously you're going to um, process that a little bit finer than you would a larger chunk. So you're not tasting, again, a big chunk of mushroom if you don't like it. So I think we can we can, you know, do some trial runs. We'll continue when we get together. We'll be able to do some uh, test kitchen items and we can add some more mushrooms in. Definitely per your request. Yeah, I think. The size matters yeah. now that you're saying that, because I remember specifically having like a portobello mushroom burger and it was just one huge portobello. And it just it, you know, you take it the first rides. bite, it, it, it's it falls out. <laughs> it's just, you know, it's just not it wasn't appetizing to me and it turned me off. Right. And so right. for people who, you know, especially people who think about mushroom as a fungi and, you know, like it's just it's a mental <laughs> thing, too. Right. You know, to, to have have someone to lead you through that process, I think, is is valuable. So thank you in advance. Lawrence. <laughs> yeah, we'll definitely work on that. I'll work on that. I was going to say, too, a great trick about mushrooms, uh, I find, especially with portobellos, is um, that if you marinate them, they take on whatever flavor you want to give them. So like I've used portobello mushrooms as a substitute for taco meat. I put it actually in my blender, chopped it up, added the taco seasoning and everything, put it in the fridge overnight. And then the next day you cook it, but it tastes like taco meat. It just needs a little longer to like absorb the flavor. But when I cooked it, you couldn't tell the difference between uh, that and the ground beef. So um, that's my big thing with, with mushrooms because Malachi, my husband, he doesn't like mushrooms. But if I marinate them, and like kind of chop right. them up in a way where they're yeah, not visually yeah. <laughs> off-putting, then he's like, okay, all right. all right. But yeah, sometimes mushrooms can be a little visually. <laughs> I think too, my husband does not like mushrooms either. And I'm experimenting with like, is it all mushrooms or just like some mushrooms or is it how it's prepared to Lisa's point? What I found, uh, Lawrence, I think you and Jen made uh, tacos also one day that was made of jackfruit. Uh, and you had this, was it jackfruit? No, we, we, yeah, we purchased some plant-based meat, um, that was supposed to be like barbecue, but I actually don't know that it was made of jackfruit. I'm going to go back and look. 
Well, I have experimented with jackfruit as a as a taco, and what I've, or at least what I'm learning also too, is that it's not just the mushrooms, it's not just the jackfruit, it's the layering of textures. Like those tacos that you guys no. made us the co- we made. No, that wasn't it. We we made tacos a second time, um, which we'll we'll post a lot of pictures when this episode launches so people can see it. But we made nachos and we made tacos that were supposed to approximate the salt lick tacos that I had in Austin. So they're like barbecue tacos. And then we also had nachos. They were gluten free because I remember them being wrapped in collard green. And I thought to myself, okay, now we're just gone off the reservation. Collard green tacos. I mean, seriously. No, no, they they were were the collard green tacos. (laughs) It was, but, but they weren't gluten free wraps, right? So they, they were, were gluten free. They were gluten free wraps. No, they were not. We're talking about two different events. Oh, so okay. we did do a, a collard a collard green wrap, which was one session, and then we also did what Jen, Jennifer mentioned as far as uh, some nachos and uh, some tacos that were made from jackfruit. Yeah, all of those delicious. What I'm trying to get to yeah. was I noticed because I tried to make the collard green wraps on my own, and what I noticed was. There was a texture. There was a layering of stuff. You had like a pickled radish in there or something that totally changed something. And it wasn't just like, hey, put some mushrooms in there and put some you know, lettuce and some uh, tomatoes. No, it was something else and I couldn't duplicate it. But the only reason I bring it up is to say I, I too am experimenting and I've noticed that it is the layering of flavors that help to make the food delicious, not just a meat approximation, but a delicious plant-based food that can stand on its own. And that part takes time and experience to create. Yeah, I like what Lisa said too about um, how she makes her tacos. And I agree that I don't feel like mushrooms really have much of a taste, that they'll take on the flavor profile of whatever you mix with it. Um, And one of the things that I've done just time and time again is I'll saute red onion, spinach, and mushrooms, sometimes all together, sometimes separately. And then I'll take that and I'll add it to a flatbread. I'll um, toss some pasta with it and a lemon sauce. Um, I'll throw it on some nachos and it it always tastes good. Like the, whatever it is, those three things together. And, and we've sauteed it together and just had it for breakfast, like with an avocado toast. So I don't know what the combination of those flavors does, but I feel like it can carry into almost any, any dish. Throw it on top of anything and it tastes good. So try that when you get a chance. Let us know how it goes. Um, And we'll link to a couple of other resources and recipes on the show notes for this episode and encourage you try to have a full day of plant-based eating um, and see if it doesn't make a difference for your life and your wallet. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard today, please take two minutes and leave us a review in your favorite podcast app. And in the meantime... Don't let perfection be the enemy of progress.